I'm going to give you a cultural example of, of why we need to go deeper. Why culture and why language matters as it relates to the scriptures. I'm going to give you a phrase, right? Here's the phrase. I am mad about my flat. I am mad about my flat. This is the phrase. I am mad about my flat. Now, the first thing that you think of as an American is what? I'm mad about my flat tire. Is that what you thought? Okay. Now, I'm going to give you the same exact phrase. I'm mad about my flat. Now, if, if, if someone from the UK hears that, it means something totally different to them. It means that I'm actually happy about my apartment. They call an apartment in the UK a flat. So if someone says, I'm mad about my flat, they're not mad that their tire doesn't have air in it. They're happy about the apartment that they live in. So now we speak the same language. We write the same language. We live in the same time, time period. But yet, because of culture and because of location, it's a totally different meaning with a totally different expression, yet the same words are actually being said. And uh, if you write them on paper or you say them, it's, it's, they're the same words, but they're not the same. So I'm giving you this illustration to help you to understand that culture and language actually does matter as it relates to the Bible. And that was the example. If, that doesn't, uh, if you don't get that, then just stick with me and it'll make sense. Um, but we're going to go to... Jeremiah 36, and let me kind of give you just an overview kind of of what's happening. What's happening basically is that we're in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. Jehoiakim is the son of Josiah. Josiah was a king. He began to rule at age eight. Josiah, good. Jehoiakim, bad. And so there was not, there was a disconnection. There was not generational continuity between Josiah and Jehoiakim, okay? And so what happens is that Jehoiakim uh, is not a good king, and you're going to see why towards the end of this chapter. And so basically he has no regard for the word of the Lord, and uh, the word of God was not the final authority in his life, which led him into bondage and captivity. And I'm going to say this to you. If the word of God is not the final authority in your life, you're headed for bondage, you'll live in bondage, and your children will live in bondage. When the word of God is not final authority, captivity is the only place you're going. I don't care what your feelings say, which I don't care what your finances say, I don't care who your friends are. If the word of God is not final authority in your life, captivity is the only place you're going to wind up. And so you're going to see that in this, uh, in this chapter. And uh, now it came to pass... Verse 1, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even until this day. So now God is calling Jeremiah the prophet, which his name actually means that Jah, or that, that God will rise. And so... He speaks to Jeremiah and he says, take everything that I've spoken to you and put it in a book. And so he begins to do that. And uh, he has spoken words against Israel and against Judah. Now God mentions Israel and he mentions Judah because the kingdom was divided. And what did Jesus say? A kingdom that is divided against itself cannot stand. 
This is Jesus. This is Jesus' words, right? And so now he takes a book and he writes this book of the words of the Lord that are against not only Israel but Judah because the kingdom is divided. You have north and south. Um, and so uh, verses, uh, verse 3. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them that they may turn... From his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and sin. So in verse 3 you have God's good intentions. God is saying, Jeremiah, I want you to write a book and I want you to um, speak these words. And the purpose of the book is so that they would turn from their sin and that he would forgive not only their sin but their iniquity. So the purpose of the book is to bring forth repentance and forgiveness, which means God's intention when he gives a warning to a people, to a person, or to a place is so that they would turn, so that they would change, so that what he's warning them of does not come upon them. It's kind of like why we would tell our children, look both ways. Why? Because you don't want your children to get hit by a car. Why? Because you love them. Why? Because they're created in your image and likeness. And so they even look like you. Sometimes they behave like you. Sometimes they sound like us. Sometimes that's cute. Other times it's not cute. And so because we care for them, we give a warning to them. And so because God loves his people, because God cares for his people, he is warning his people. Hey, guys. I'm reminding you that if you break the covenant, that if you disobey my commands, that you're going to be led away captive. And, and that's exactly what's, what, what you're going to see is going to happen. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of the book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I have confined, uh, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll from which I have written at my instruction from the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read in the hearing of all Judah who comes from their cities. It may be that they will present their supplications before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury of the Lord that has pronounced against this people. And so now... Jeremiah is a prophet, and he's not really wanted in the house of God. Sometimes the true voices are not wanted, because people don't really want to hear what God is saying. People want to hear something that will tickle their ears. They don't want to hear the voice of God. And, and you're going to see, so... Jeremiah has a secretary, and the secretary is Baruch. It's his scribe. So Baruch uh, writes down the words that Jeremiah has spoken. So they're working together in tandem for the purposes of God. Jeremiah has the heart of God because Jeremiah wants the same thing God wants. Jeremiah wants the people not to go, wow, that's a great prophecy. Wow, that's a harsh prophecy. No, he wants them to hear it and repent so that the impending doom doesn't come upon them. In other words, he loves the people of God and he doesn't want destruction for the people of God. So he's warning the people of God and he's saying to the people of God, hey, if you're not going to hear it from me, hear it from my assistant. I just want you to hear it. because I, 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 And so here you see the, the heart of Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah is also wise because Jeremiah says, uh, read it 
on the day of fasting. Why read it on the day of fasting? Well, because that's a day where the church attendance will be high and the participation of the people is, is, is good. People are there fasting and they're there ready to hear and they're there actually because they want to be there and because they want to participate with what God's doing. So participation is up and attendance is up and Jeremiah understands that and so he says, say this then, right? He understands what's going on. And so you have to understand a little bit of culture to understand that. But that, that's what's happening. Uh, verse 8. Now Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him. Reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim. The son of Josiah king of Judah in the ninth month. Which would be around the time of November December our time. Um, and all the people who came from the cities of Jerusalem, uh, from Judah to Jerusalem. So now all of the people from Judah are coming into the city of Jerusalem to hear the words of the Lord. Because this is a day of fasting. And the only time there would be a day of fasting in this, in this time frame is two reasons. One, because they were in some sort of a militaristic plague or there was something going on where the people of God were under affliction. So the kings and leaders would call for a day of fasting because they have, they have problems. And it's the same thing today. When do people show up to prayer meetings? When they have problems. Not when we're doing good. Not when we get a fat check. People show up to prayer meetings when they have problems. And so now the people are coming either because of that or because of the Day of the Atonement. That's the only two times really in which in this culture during this time there would actually be a corporate day of fasting. And so there's a good chance that because of what's going on with Babylon that the nation is concerned about their well-being. And when we become concerned about our well-being or our economics, all of a sudden something turns on inside of us and then we go, oh, we need God. And so we begin to pray and if we're really serious, we'll fast. And so, now it came to pass in the fifth year. Let me go to verse 10. Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemaiah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe in the upper room, the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. Basically what happens is, in verse 11, the, the princes... The, the leaders, the people who are in a position of authority, hear these words, and it troubles them. Okay? And so I'm going to skip into um, verse uh, 14. Therefore all the princes set Judah, the son of Nathan, the son of Shalmiah, I don't know, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. So now the princes and the people in a position of leadership, they're looking for a little bit of a private meeting with the word of the Lord. They want to hear it behind closed doors. They want to hear now these are people in places of power and places of authority. Take in your hand. And so Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them and said, sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in the hearing. Now it happened when they heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king these words. So now what's happening is the words of Jeremiah are coming through Baruch, the scribe, to the princes and to the people who are in positions of authority. And now the people are troubled by the word of the Lord. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how did you write all these words at his instruction? So Baruch answered them. He proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in a book. 
Then the princess said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. Now, the, the word of the Lord is bringing both Jeremiah and Baruch into hiding. So the princes and the politicians and the religious leaders do not want to hear the word of the Lord. They don't. And so now the prophet and his secretary are going to be hiding. Are they hiding from Babylon? No. They're hiding from their own people. Religious people who don't want to change. That's, that's who they're hiding from. Religious control freaks who do not want to hear what God is saying. Watch, verse 20. Then they went to the king into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishma, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent to Jehuda to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishma's, the scribe's chamber, and Jehuda read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. In other words, there's a fireplace before him. That's what's happening. And it happened when Jehuda had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire and was on the hearth until the scroll was consumed in the fire. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of his servants who heard these words. God tells Jeremiah to rewrite the scroll. He does. 28. Take yet another scroll and write it on all the former words that were a first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, you have burned the scroll, saying, Why have you written it that the king of Babylon will come and destroy the land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king, He shall have no one, listen to this, He shall have no one, to sit on the throne of David, and his body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. In other words, you're going to die a brutal, horrible death, and you're not going to get a good burial. No honor and no dignity and no inheritance, because you have no regard for the word of the Lord. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because they did not heed. So God warned them because he loved them, because he did not want them to be destroyed, and the end of their actions were destruction. And he knew that, and he was warning them. If you continue to go in this direction, Babylon is going to come, and they're going to take you captive. This is God warning his people. He doesn't want this to happen. This is not God saying, yeah, this is great. You guys are going to pay for this. No, he warned them out of love so it didn't have to happen. You have to hear the spirit of what God is saying. He doesn't want this. This is not his will. This is their will. When you reject God's will, you get your will. And you get the end result of your will, which is destruction. 
So, Jeremiah prophesies that Babylon is coming. That's Babylon, this is it. In verse 29, Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land. Turn with me to Daniel 1. We're going we're gonna to read Daniel 1. And you're going to see what happens. This is the prophecy. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 1, prophecy fulfilled. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of God. So now what happens is, Jeremiah warned the people. The people did not turn from their ways. Babylon came and Babylon took the people captive. Not only did Babylon take the people captive, Babylon came and took things, articles, things that would, be, would bring worship and would honor God in, from the house of God into Babylon, into the, house of, into the house of their God in Shinar, which is modern-day Iraq. And so what happens is, not only are the people taken captive... But the, the very articles that were used to worship God and bring honor to God were taken as well. Now watch this. There's, you're going to see something very systematic on how the enemy works. You're going to see what the enemy is up to. And if this, if this speaks to you, then God will show you. And if this doesn't speak to you, then what can I say? But verse 3, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants... And some of the nobles, listen to this, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, whom they might teach their language and their literature to. What does the enemy do? The first thing the enemy wants is your children. To teach literature and language to. Why? Because literature and language determines the trajectory of someone's life. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end they might serve the king. So the king is taking very young boys, young men, and he's giving them their diet and he's giving them his language in his literature. He's reculturizing them to serve him. See, now, uh, from among those, the sons of Judah were Daniel, Haniah, Mishael, and Azariah. They become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you notice that their names change, their identity changes, their diet change, what they read, how they speak, how they think? This is the enemy taking them captive because of the sins of basically this corrupt king. That's why leadership really does matter. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel to be Belshazzar, to Hannah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Watch this. This is, this is pivotal. But Daniel. But Daniel purposed in his heart 
that he would not defile himself with the portions of the king's delicacy, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. But, but God, rather but Daniel, excuse me, but Daniel, watch this, follow me, but Daniel, now God. But Daniel purposed not to be defiled, not to be corrupted, not to be polluted, not to go with the flow, not to be ruled by the appetites that they were ruled by. See? Because what you desire and what you feed on determines the trajectory of your life. Tell me what you watch, tell me what you listen to, and I'll tell you how you're going to react when pressure comes on you. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. In other words, Daniel purposed in his heart that he was going to be pure. Because he was pure, he winded up being powerful. Because he was powerful, because he was pure, he winded up having influence. See, the influence, this is a result of purity. And sometimes the first thing you have to know is what you're not going to do and what you're not going to participate with. Before you figure out everything you're going to do, you better figure out what you don't need to be doing and what you don't need to be ingesting and what you don't need to be, you know, interacting with. Now, God brought Daniel into favor. Compromise does not bring us into favor. Compromise brings us into captivity. Purity brings us into favor. We, we try to compromise, and what we all wind up with is not favor. You want favor? Don't compromise. The favor of the Lord is not for people who compromise. And the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear, my Lord, the king who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. In other words, if I don't give you the food that the king requires me to give you, it's going to be my head. It's going to cost my life. And he's a eunuch, so he's already, be ca- he's already castrated. By the way, all of these young boys were castrated. Yep, Daniel's parents were killed and he was castrated. He could have been real bitter and real pissed off. Yeah, because none of the kids and none of the men who stand before the presence of the king could have a penis. Because the king was not about your pleasure, he was about his pleasure. That's why they were all eunuchs. You could not serve the king in those days and, and touch his women. That's why there's a chief of the eunuchs is taking care of the little boys. No, this is culture. I'm just saying. Daniel was castrated. When you're castrated, you know what that means? No future, no inheritance, no legacy, no nothing. In the ancient world, that's like shooting yourself. There's nothing worse than that. So instead of his being bitter and angry, they killed my parents, I got no future, I got no pleasure, I got nothing going. Instead of being bitter, instead of being a victim, he said, no, I'm going to purpose in my heart not to defile myself. What happened to me is bad, but it's not going to define me, and he's not going to tell me what I should desire. I'm going to honor the one true God, even though my circumstances are not great. Which is an understatement, by the way, if they cut your penis off and killed your parents. 
Sorry, you know, I'm just letting, you know. And of the chief of the eunuchs said, okay, verse 11. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had sent over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies as you see fit. So deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. So what they're saying is, listen, let us eat what we eat. Let your guys eat what they eat and then test us. See if we look sick or if we look healthy. And if we look basically healthy, let us do it. Because Daniel didn't want this guy to lose his head because of his own convictions. So he was saying, let's test it. And then if it works, let's go with it. God gave him wisdom. Wisdom makes stuff work. You got wisdom, stuff's got to work. At the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in the flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away the portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. So now it seems that through saying no to something, God gave them something else. Did you see? God was not involved in the diet. God did not tell them what to eat, but they knew the law of God, and they knew that they should not be defiling themselves with the food that the Babylonians eat, nor intoxicating themselves with the wine that the Babylonians drink. See, you cannot make decisions correctly if you're intoxicated. That's why prophets and priests were not supposed to drink wine, because how can you speak the word of the Lord if you're Right? And I'm not saying drinking a glass of wine is bad, but there was a reason that people who occupied a certain position should not touch something that would intoxicate them. There's, there's a point to that. Now, at the end of the days... Okay, excuse me. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said... That they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them. And among all them was none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm or who were in his kingdom. So here's, here, here's, here's, here's the point. The point is, Daniel chose not to be defiled. Daniel chose to be pure, which means he was powerful. God brought him into favor, and he was excellent. He was better than the people who he was up against. He was better than the competition. In other words, he, he was pure, and because he was pure, he was excellent. And he was better than, ten times better than, the magicians and the astrologers. The magicians were known for power. The astrologers were known for wisdom. Daniel has more of both, ten times more of both. Now, I want to go back to Jeremiah 
uh, 29, and we're going to get into a passage that is way, 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 way misquoted and really very often taken out of context. And it's very funny because if you go to like a Christian bookstore or something, you're going to see this, uh, this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has plans to prosper you and to bless you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And so some of you, I hope I'm not stepping on toes, but may have, you know, this verse in your bathroom or this verse on a wall somewhere. And it's just wonderful. It makes it very cute verse. It really activates your feelings. It feels like, you know, tomorrow doesn't have to suck. Maybe my life will get better. So it's a really, it's a verse that we really hold on to. And it's a verse filled with hope. And it speaks about the intentions of God, which is wonderful, except it has a context. And so we're going to pull it back into its context. And then uh, that'll be helpful to understand actually what it is that it really means. Uh, Verse 1 of Jeremiah 29. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah is writing a letter now to the people, to the people in power and to people who had positions, to priests, to prophets, and to people who were taken captive. That's who, that's who he's, he's writing this to. This is really important. This is critical. This happened after Jechahiah, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. So after the royal family basically is gone from Jerusalem, he writes, The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gamaya, the son of Hilkah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Here it comes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, he's talking to people in captivity. So this would be like if we were taken captive into Canada or into Mexico and a prophet writes a letter to the people of God instructing them how they should live in a foreign land. That, that's what's happening, right? I'm trying to bring it into our world. I want you to hear this. <clears throat> Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they will bear sons that you may be increased there and not diminished. In other words, while you are in Babylon, go about doing normal life. Have children, get married, have families for the purpose of you increasing in the land of Babylon. In other words, don't go to Babylon and die Don't go to Babylon and stop living your life. Live your life, plant, receive a harvest, get married, have children, increase. Now this is is 7. I want you to hear verse 7. And I want you to think about what you're hearing. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. Now, we always hear, I love this, it's very beautiful. We always hear a nice little, you know, little Jewish star, and there's a little, 
little, little scripture, you know, something on people's wall. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They that do that will prosper. Wonderful. It's great. Let's do that. I think we should do that too. But here the prophet is saying, actually, pray for the peace of Babylon. Pray for the people who are holding you captive. Pray for the blessing of God upon the people who've taken you from your family and from your land. It doesn't it have echoes of the gospel. It doesn't have, it sounds almost like God of Israel. It almost sounds like it's Jesus of Nazareth talking. It's, it's almost what it sounds like. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who use you. Turn the other cheek. It almost sounds like the gospel, right? Seek the peace. We should have a, 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 you know, we should build a, a banner. Uh, pray for the peace of Babylon. <laughs> pray for the prosperity of Babylon. Right under, we could have, you know, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, you know that's set one of prayer. The second set, pray for the peace of Babylon and pray for the people who are holding you captive. Pray for the people who are using and abusing you. Pray for them too. And through their peace, you'll have peace. In other words, you can't really have peace until you pray for the people who are trying to steal your peace. For thus says the Lord... Of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and diviners who are in your midst deceive you. Nor listen to your dreams which you have caused to be dreamed. For they they prophesy falsely in my name and I have not sent them. Jeremiah is saying false prophets are going to come in and tell you that it's your season. It's the end of your suffering. That your day is here. That you're going to be free. That you're going to be blessed. And he said God didn't send them. God didn't send them. They're not sent by God. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, pray for the people who are persecuting you. And when they have peace, you'll prosper and you'll have peace through their peace. That's very counterintuitive. Very different. It almost sounds like Jesus is talking in Jeremiah. The eternal word. For I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and I will perform my good word toward you. For I will cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. And this is that verse that we love to put on uh, plaques and pictures and in the walls and the bathrooms or whatever. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yes, that is the heart of God, a future and a hope, because God thinks good thoughts toward you, because he loved you. Yes, but that's why he warned them, so that they wouldn't have to go into captivity. The warning is the love of God. The warning. When, let me just say something, and, and, and I'm just going to shoot from the hip, and if this makes sense to you, good, and if it doesn't, then it won't make sense anyway. But I have, this has been almost 15 years that I've been walking with God. And one of the patterns that I've seen, I have seen people reject the help that God has sent them. And almost every single person, I I could write a book on it, I have to change names or else people want to kill me. But every single time I have seen people perpetually reject the help that God sends them. Their life goes to hell. Destruction comes upon them. 
I, I can write. And, and, and this is the thing. If we will not hear the warning, then what we're being warned of will come upon us. It's just the way it is. The warning is the love of God. The warning is saying, son, look both ways before you cross the street. Son, don't just walk out in the middle of the street like it's all good. Because the guy driving the taxi doesn't care about you. He's not looking for you. He's not thinking about you. So you have to hear this warning as love. This is a, this is a love thing. I'm, I'm warning you because I don't want that to happen to you. Don't listen. People reject the help that God sends them. And calamity comes upon them. Time after time after time after time. I've watched it. And I know that when someone won't hear, they will find no help. And as soon as someone is willing, really wanting help, they want to hear. They want to hear from God. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and go and pray, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me when you f- and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. So, if you're not wholehearted about this thing of, of, of God and Jesus, if this is not wholehearted, if you're not all in, you're not going to find what it is that you're looking for. This is not going to happen. And it's very interesting. I, 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 if, you, if you look around what's going on in the world today, you'll see that many Muslim people who... Um, bow down every day and pray to Allah. Every day they pray, very fervently, very devoted, very committed, not half-heartedly, fully in. They bow down toward Mecca and they pray. And all over the world, especially in the Middle East, but also in the States and other places, people who are praying to Allah are finding Jesus. Because their intention when they get on their knees and pray is to search after God, And they're finding God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is God. So the word of God is true, whether you know it or not. Whether you're searching for God who you know or searching for God who you don't know, when it's wholehearted, he will appear. And all over the world, people are encountering the one true God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's not who they set out to seek after. But their hearts are genuine, they're sincere, so they're seeking after God and they're finding Jesus. But that's, that's what it is to be wholehearted. It's, it's the same thing happened with Paul. Paul was wholehearted. He was wholeheartedly full of zeal, 100% in. Who did he bump into on the road to Damascus? Jesus. Whenever you're wholehearted, you're bound to bump into Jesus. Because Jesus is all in. Jesus is all in. Jesus is not halfway. We don't have a halfway savior. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away. Now, let let me just say this. Uh, When you go into Daniel chapter, I believe it's 9. Let me me go there. I'm not going to preach this today. But when you go into chapter uh, 9, Daniel begins to realize 
He's an old man. He's in Babylon. He begins to pray because the words of Jeremiah, by the way, uh, when Jeremiah was prophesying in the streets of Jerusalem, uh, in, in Judah, and even in Jerusalem, there's a chance that Daniel, as a young boy going to the temple, heard this man of God prophesying and speaking. So Jeremiah has, has uh, Daniel rather, has the scroll of Jeremiah. He's reminded of the words of Jeremiah. He begins to pray for the release of the captives because of the word of the Lord that Jeremiah spoke, that in 70 years that you will be released from captivity. So he begins to pray. The angel of the Lord shows up and begins to speak to him about the scripture of truth and begins to interpret basically Jeremiah's prophecy as it's not 70 years, it's 70 weeks. It's 70 times 7, it's 490. 490 is the exact time in when Jesus himself would show up. And regathering the people in the land happened through Jesus and happened uh, even on Pentecost when people, when Jews from, devout Jews from all over the nations came to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They came without God and they left with God. And then you have the reconstitution of a nation of faith that is bigger than geography and bigger than a nation, but it's actually faith. United under Jesus Christ as the one true king, who is the son of David, who is Israel's Messiah, who is the savior of the world. So now what you have is you have Jeremiah beginning to pray and beginning to fast and beginning to confess because he realizes that God's good word toward his people is about to come to pass. And so you do have a release from the exiles, and there was waves of release, but the people from this time on, and we're going to finish this stuff, we're going to get into this in the next two weeks, but from basically the captivity from the Babylonians, then who rules? Persia. What's Persia? Iran. Iran. Depends on how you say it. So you have them, the children of Israel are ruled by Babylon, which is Iraq. And then they're ruled by Persia, which is Iran. And then they're ruled by Grecia, which is Greece. And then they're ruled and occupied by Rome. And then Jesus the Messiah shows up. So what you have is you have prosperity during Solomon. They never recovered from prosperity. His sons divided the nation between the north and the south. From the time they were divided, they were then eventually taken captive. And from the captivity until the Messiah, they were ruled by different people. And they never lived in the fullness of the land that God had for them. And that's the story of Israel. And then Jesus comes as the representative to fulfill the covenant that God made to Abraham. And to reconstitution, to re-basically bring Israel back together to gather them. And then to fulfill the promise that God gave to Abraham to bless the nations through them. We prophesy in part. And this is the language. This is what's really important about prophecy. Prophecy is not always literal. Sometimes there's metaphors and imagery that are saying something, and if you take something like that that's literal, you won't understand it. Because what's happening here is Jeremiah going, all right, 70 years from, from when, when uh, you know, Daniel going, it's 70 years from when Jeremiah prophesied, but yet then the angel comes to talk to him about the scripture of truth, basically saying, hey, um, Daniel, love you, bro. Your, your literal interpretation of this prophecy is like, you know, it's part of the truth. Like, there is going to be a release of, of captivities. There is going to be a wave of release. 
but the real jubilee, the real freedom, is not actually now. It's actually 490 years from now, and you're not going to live to see it. Yeah, and, and that's why, let, let me just, let me throw something out there. Let me hit, let me just, pfft. when Jesus talked about forgiveness, what number did he use? 70 times, you know what that is? 490. 70 times 7, Daniel's prophecy, 490. True jubilee, real forgiveness through the blood of the Son. God sent forth His Son in the fullness of time. That's 490 years from this prophecy that the angel spoke about. Who did the angel come to? Mary, to tell them that now is the time. Jesus comes and says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's a different type of kingdom. It's not a kingdom that is advanced through fighting. It's not, you're not going to advance this kingdom through uh, rebelling against Rome or through inciting a crowd. It's not going to work that way. It actually happens way differently. It's actually more like this. It's more like suffering and glory. Seeds have to die to rise. You have to humble yourself to be exalted. You have to pray for those who use you. You have to go the extra mile. It's a different type of kingdom. It advances differently. And so, this is what's going to happen later in Daniel. Um, and, uh, but l- before I get into that, let me just say one other thing. Go to Daniel 3. Let me show you something. Um, Daniel 3 is Daniel's friends get thrown into the fire. Because they would not compromise, because they would not bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wants worship. He wants devotion. So they get thrown into the fire. And I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember what Jehoiakim did with the scroll? He takes the scroll and he throws it in the fire. Watch verse 25. Look, he answered, I see four men walking loose in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. The fourth is like the Son of God. The word gets thrown into the fire. Where does Jesus next appear? In the fire. What's the point? Can't kill the word. Can't stop the word. The word is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And those three men that were thrown into the fire were not burned. And the chains that they were in were broken. And the people that threw them in died. What's the point? The point is in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of captivity, God is still in charge. God is still in charge. God will not be mocked. His promises will go forth. His purposes will stand. And what he said he's going to do, he's going to do. Today in prayer, I was asking God, I said, what are you doing among, among the people here? What, what's going on? He says, I want you, you guys to have confidence in my faithfulness. I'm going to teach you to have confidence in my faithfulness. I'm going to teach you guys that you need to know that I'm going to come through, that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. We need to be confident, not in our ability 
but in God's faithfulness. When we are confident in God's faithfulness, we will be faithful witnesses of that God. And his name is Jesus. And so it's very important to understand that when God sends a warning to us, it's because he doesn't want us to go down that road. It's because he doesn't want those things to happen to us. And this is, this is the reality. If we do not govern our life according to the word of God, the only condition we'll have is captivity. And you, you could, like, we could choose our captivity. Do you want to be, you know, captive to lust, captive to drugs, captive to greed, captive to fear, captive to someone else's opinion, captive to some desire that's not from God, captive to something you can't afford now, captive to how people feel about you, captive. It, it doesn't matter what it is, but if we don't have God's word as the final authority, we will be held captive to something. And um, God wants his people free. I want to be free. I want you guys to be free. I want people who are listening, watching to be free. And this is the thing. The, the real thing that we have to simply ask ourselves is this. Is God's word final authority in my life? Either, 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 this, is, either this is final authority. I don't want to touch my iPad because I say this is final authority. It is final authority most of the time for some of us. But is this final authority? Is this, are these the words of God and are we going to govern our life according to this book or are we going to be governed by our feelings, by what we don't have, what we desire, by our condition? Either we're going to be governed by this or not. And, and, and if we're not, we will be held captive to something. And so I'm, I'm saying for my life, for my family, I want to be governed by this. Me personally. And I was thinking of something today and, and the Lord is reminding me that, that feelings and finances follow faith. And so what does that mean? It means that when I put God first, he then adds to me. If I don't put him first, he's not adding to me. I may be adding to myself. I may be working it to add. He's not adding. So if I want him to add, he has to be first. And this is not about money. This is about the issue of the heart. This is a heart issue. And so, let me wrap this up by praying. And I just want to see people free. I want to be free. I mean, do we want to be controlled by the world around us? Do we want to be controlled by our circumstances? Do you want to be controlled by outside stuff? I don't. I want to be free. Jesus, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Christ wants free people. We don't have to live as captives. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that you would help us govern our life according to your word. I pray, Father, that you would give us insight and that you would give us revelation and that you would help us to walk in truth. That you would help us to see. That you would help us to live from your perspective. And that we would be like Jesus and say, not my will, but your will be done. And so... We say that together, not my will, but your will be done. And we trust that we may have to wait. It may not be easy, but we believe that your will is better for us, that your intentions for us are good, that you are concerned with our well-being, that you're not a father that walks out on us, that abandons us, that leaves us stuck and stranded, that leaves us with no inheritance, but you're a good father who cares for us. And that, that is seen in Christ 
who gave himself for us. And so help us, Lord, to respond to your love and to govern our lives according to your word. Help your word to be the final authority in our life. Help Jesus to be preeminent. Help him to be first in rank, greatest in influence. Help us to live in a state of first love where the kingdom is first. Help us to simply be childlike and believe you. In Jesus' name. Amen.